Kommen wir die acht Komödie Lexinger Komödie Nettankata Nettzielste. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Over in England, we have the lovely Bianca Mangum. Nope. Hello. No, Richard. Oh, damn it! Even I didn't notice. <laughs> Bianca Richard. And you, we also have uh, the indispensable William Annis. Hello. Yes. Who is speaking in a very awkward awkwardly uh, sensual voice. Right, well, I've been practicing different phonation types for today's episode, so... Yes, indeed. That is... That is... Uh, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, super segmentals, which includes phonation types. It includes also um, nasalization, tone, whole bunch of things. Basically, so if you're not totally familiar with the term uh, a segment is one individual sound like if you're looking at an IPA transcription each uh, segment would be like one of the IPA symbols in the row and then a super segmental is something that you apply on top of a segment that sort of changes either the just um the that segment or an entire syllable or something. Right. This is all very much in theory, though, because if you ever look at actual speech, either on a spectrogram or uh, what I really enjoyed doing when I was in school, which was meg data, which is basically they put little sensors on your tongue and you see the tongue movements as you speak, nothing is all by itself, which is fun, but also a pain. Well, yeah, it's... It, Truly, the, the sounds always blend into each other and such. And Co-articulation. A little bit of that might be relevant as we get into our discussion if we talk a little bit about tonogenesis. But let's kind of take this stuff step by step. Yes. William, you've got a bunch of notes here. What, what can you tell us about all the different super segmentals? Well, I guess the first thing I want to mention is that in any given language, all of the things we're going to discuss today can either be phonemic or conditioned or both. Yeah. So you might have a language that has tone, but one of the tones might have some different phonation type. You might have nasalization that always happens when the word has a coda with a nasal consonant, or it might not. So there's all sorts of different combinations here, which we probably don't have time to elaborate on, so I just wanted to mention that, is to keep that at the front of your mind. Um, I remember seeing on Wikipedia the vowel chart for a language that had long vowels, short vowels. They could be either nasal, creaky voice, or both. <laughs> yeah. And all You've of those... That and that was here, but... That like, was, uh, no, no, that was from a previous episode. Um... The, the point is, all of those were phonemic. The contrast mattered. So, with that, I guess, do we want to start with stress? Yes. Well, yeah, that's 
It seems like a logical place to start. So, stress is a sort of a weird thing, because it affects a syllable, right? But also, there's sort of a stress pattern over an entire word in most languages. Right. That use it, at least. Um, And what counts as stress can be different from language to language. English and a lot of Western European languages, the ones that have stress at all, or at the word level, have a combination of uh, intensity, that is volume, and pitch. So the English stress accent has a pitch component to it most of the time. Yeah, it's sort of a a falling tone, isn't it? Uh, Honestly, I have no idea. I'm sure it's different in different circumstances. Yeah. My voice now is probably... I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Bianca was flabbergasted by the idea. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I might, haven't looked at it. Okay. Then you might Sorry. have a language like, um, for me, I think of ancient Greek and Vedic, but um, some languages, I always forget if it's Czech or Serbian. I think it's Czech has a pitch accent and either Latvian or Lithuanian, which I also always confuse, have a pitch accent. In that case, the quote-unquote stressed syllable happens at a higher pitch um, than the other syllables uh, in the word. Swedish pitch accent. Uh, yes. Yeah, right. Um, what's interesting to notice about languages with a pitch accent is usually what's happening is throughout the course of the word, the pitch is slowly going up until you get to the accented syllable, and then how you recognize the accent is that the following syllable, syllable has a downstep. Oh. So the contrast is less than the... It's not that the syllable vowel is pronounced at a higher pitch than the previous syllable, it's that it's higher than the following syllable. Yes, I think I heard about that happening in Japanese, which is uh, a pitch accent. System. Right, right, which has a pitch accent system, which I've never fully understood from a theoretical standpoint. Mm-hmm. So, see, I always kind of, in my mind, conflate pitch accent with two-tone system. So Completely different, yeah. Mm. I'm not, uh, I, I, I may be, I, I, I suppose I may be wrong on that, so. Yeah, that's, sometimes people say, oh, ancient Greek had a, had a pitch accent system, like Chinese. <laughs> yes, um, that's actually <laughs> no! very much nothing. But how could he write a book? <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, so Bianca's making a joke that I'm sure other conlangers will appreciate. Uh, earlier this week, I was in a bookstore, and there was the whole post-Christmas craziness, and some slightly distracted mother is walking through the store with her two children, and she was saying sort of distractedly, well, he doesn't speak English. And one of her daughters, young, very reasonably said, then how does he write books? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Which- None of this has anything to do with what we're talking about. We, but we just anyway. need to help people understand the in-jokes. So, ignoring, <laughs> ignoring for the moment pitch accent, mm-hmm. another issue of stress that comes <laughs> into discussion is a language might be described as stress-timed, syllable-timed, or mora-timed. Now, this is an interesting distinction to make and seems intuitively obvious for some languages, and yet... Once you go into the lab and try to find proof about what's going on, it becomes very slippery. Syllables are devilish to do. Right, and there are one or two languages that destroy our concept of what a syllable is anyway, so some of the verbal languages. 
Yeah. Um, now, I remember reading... I may try to find this for the show notes. I remember reading uh, sort of a post on Language Log where one of the the uh, bloggers there actually sort of um, posited that maybe stress time and syllable time aren't, don't really exist, but we have sort of the illusion that they exist because different languages have syllable structures that cause sort of like a lot of people will think of Spanish as a syllable timed language right, but right. Spanish also has a fairly restrictive syllable structure so all the syllables are roughly the same length anyway um okay maybe i mean it it occurred to me in thinking about this that there might be a chicken or egg problem so let's explain what these terms mean a little bit more in a syllable timed language the idea is that each syllable takes about the same time to say. Yeah. You get a machine gun effect is what the the paper, the first paper that described this distinction called it. The second one, stress timed, means that the duration of time from stress to stress is approximately the same. Mm-hmm. The idea is that um, the, the, the analogy he used was a Morse code sound. Right From stress to stress, you might have a different number of syllables between. And then a mora-timed language is something like Japanese or ancient Greek, where you have um, long vowels, short vowels, um, open syllables and closed syllables are all timed differently. And so you get a rhythm there that has to do with your, your the vowels determine the rhythm, not um, stress, really. Yeah, mora is... Almost like a, a sub-syllable language component or something. Right. One mora is one short vowel, typically. A mora is a unit of syllable duration. Yeah. Right. A vowel is one mora. A coda consonant is another mora. A long vowel is two mora. So, yeah. Um, and this appears to be a, a genuine... Right. It sounds kind of theoretical, but there are poetic systems on the planet that help these distinctions become clear and real because, for example, in Urdu, a short syllable, a long syllable, and an extra long syllable are all handled different in the meter. So, listeners can attend to the distinction. Mm-hmm. Same thing with haiku. That's true. Um, it's very interesting, this this idea of sort of syllables versus uh, more, because both of them are sort of abstract things that there's no you, you you can't find any like real physical thing to attach them to it's it's not um like people have tried to actually find a a physical or a phonetic uh way of distinguishing syllables and it doesn't work well it doesn't work universally um i saw a paper where one guy suggested listen we just need to cope with definitions of both syllables and words that are a spectra. We just have to realize that the definition is going to be fuzzy and that different languages are going to realize things differently. Because clearly, there's something real to speakers about syllables and words. Because if you ask them to say things very slowly, certain kinds of slow, distorted speech they make are going to fall along certain kinds of boundaries naturally, even for non-linguists. So, there's something going on there, even if linguists don't know what it is. 
So the only reason I brought all of this up was because stressed time languages, and for the time being, we'll just assume that that phrase actually means something and it's real. Yeah. Is stressed timing seems to be associated with vowels being tortured. In English, your stressed vowels get their full quality and unstressed vowels are reduced. Yes. Much this to the true. happiness of many people around the world. Right. Spelling is a nightmare. <laughs> right. If everything's a schwa, how do you know what vowel you're supposed to spell the word with? Exactly. Like super segmental. <laughs> you know, good luck. Unless you happen to, you know, know the, 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 the combinations. <laughs> so Russian does this. Um, biblical Hebrew is my favorite example of this because... You could keep adding suffixes to Hebrew verbs, and each new suffix would pull the stress accent along, and it would cause collapse of all the vowels upstream in the word. (laughs) There are lots of ways of writing schwa-like sounds in Hebrew, and I'm pretty sure that the word schwa comes to us from Hebrew, in fact. Sounds like it. Possible. Oh, yes. From German, from Hebrew, schwa. Right. Oh, yes. Uh. Um, so we talked about this a little <coughs> excuse me we talked about this a little bit with Mutsun where different phonologic with different grammatical processes added new things to the word caused a stress shift which also caused changes in vowels all over the place mm-hmm. um, apparently um, this reduction can be conditioned so in Mexican Spanish an unstressed vowel near an S sound might be reduced but not otherwise that's interesting. I've never heard any reduction in any form of Spanish, but that may be because my ears are biased or something. Sure. Um, and uh, what was I going to say? And it's yet another case where we're dealing with a spectrum where stress timed versus syllable timed is not, you know, a switch, yes or no. It's yes, we have a little bit or we have a great deal of it. Mm hmm. Um, so. I think that's that's quite a bit about um, stress to really be talking about. Um, one one thing I might want to m- mention is that um, sort of at the word level, you often have a primary and a secondary stress in particularly long words. This happens in English. If you um, have stress at all, then yes, that's possible. Yes. Um, you don't necessarily have to have stress, obviously. I think a lot of tonal languages don't have any stress component. Um, yeah, sometimes uh, linguists get in arguments about that, but my guess is, is very often they do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't even need stress, but, you know, it's sort of, it's almost, it's not quite a binary decision between stress and tone, maybe, but it's close to it. Yeah. Um. What was I going to say? So, yes, if you have a stress accent and you decide that you're going to use stress timing, then you need to consider the possibility that vowels will be tortured as mm-hmm. accents move. I've always wanted to do that, to put it into one of my conlangs. Mm-hmm. I was planning on it. <clears throat> I think I would have a hard time. I don't usually create languages that do that. I have this love of tone languages, so I, I don't deal with stress very often. Um I think it'd be tough. You'd really need to sit down and think about that a while. That's why I haven't done it yet, because I haven't <laughs> figured out the full syllable structure I want. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And just because 
you have to you have to figure out how exactly you reduce things because like um usually things sort of centralize either they go to schwa or they go to something a little bit more central. Well, yeah. but I there's had also nice... oh, there's sorry. also the example of uh, in some dialects of English e and and uh, a going to i. I do that. Yeah. Yeah. And in Russian, you have this important distinction between palatal and non-palatal consonants, and I assume um, that this affects what the reduced vowel is. Oh, probably. Yeah. I'm, I'm, could, I'm, I'm sure of that. It's just been so long since I've looked at Russian that I hesitate to say anything You could probably that. say that of a lot of these sounds that tend to screw with vowels in the first place. Like, I have no doubt that... Again, I have no empirical evidence for this, but I have no doubt that uh, the that uvulars probably mess with what what re- reduced vowels end up being. So I can say that that's actually true, having studied some languages of those. That's I know they drag right. them around like crazy in um in Nuktatut. At least I did a yes. assignment on it. Exactly. Yeah, they can the because I know that I knew that sort of uvulars drag around vowels in general just because of the, the need to move your tongue around. Yes. Uh, but... Uh, so, that stress accent. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a... That, that, that ended up being a fairly big part of the, this topic, but yeah. there's a lot of other... So, William, you have the list of phonation types here. I love this. So, um, modal voice is the default normal speaking voice used by me <laughs> or most <laughs> used by most English speaking people. You can't say it's true for people all over the planet because if you speak oh. Burmese, it's not true. Um, it's I wish just, that was you, in the dictionary. Modal voice is the voice typically used by a William Annis in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, and these phonation, these voicing types, all has to do with how you are holding your vocal cords and how much you're vibrating them. And um, tension in the larynx can be involved with some of these as well. So so, so we so, all know voiced and voiceless, but let's... Sorry, right. let's well, I don't ahead. know. Some, some people may not realize that there are plenty of languages that devoice their vowels. Well, uh, I know Japanese does. Yes, Japanese. So it, looks, it sounds like to an English speaker, desks... But really, it's des, right? There's you're devoicing the uh sound at the end of it's syllables. Um, a lot of the Uto Aztecan languages, especially the um, Chemuevi and that family, final vowels get uh, devoiced. Um, so we talked before about creaky voice, which Bianca calls creepy voice, and which now I'm likely to call for the end of time. And creaky voice sounds like this. Um, there's a, a pronounced sort of creaking. It's also called vocal fry. Um, in English speech, you hear it often at the end of a intonation unit. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, some writer at Boing Boing saw an article about, oh, there's creaky voice among women on, in California at the end of their clauses. Now everyone on the internet, friends of mine who have no interest in linguistics, are like, have you heard about this vocal fry? Uh, Sounds like a fish fry, but worse. Um, <laughs> so, so, creaky voice is this sort of, most people can make it, just make it sound like you're tired. Um, speech pathologists 
talk about the lowest register of human speech as being the um, creaky register because when you try to speak that low, creaky voice naturally comes into the question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there's something. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, creepy voice is so common in English that once you start hearing you, it will creep you out. <laughs> <laughs> You've gone your whole life without noticing up until now, and you will notice, and you will have nightmares. Thank Maybe you, not nightmares, Bian- but thanks to Bianca and Boing Boing. <laughs> <laughs> um, another voice is called breathy voice, which sounds like this. I have a hard time <laughs> doing this one. Um. It's, it's kind of like you're sort of half devoicing everything. Right. <laughs> um, see, to me, that sounds creepier than creaky voice. Anyway, um, there's one that's called, not very interestingly, harsh or well, harsh voice, which sounds like this. And that's <laughs> your like whole. Sounds like a Dalek. Yeah, your whole your whole larynx is constricted. I've, um, heard, I've heard it called the the pirate phonation. The pirate phonation, that's nice. Um, um, and there are a bunch of other of these, which I've not listed because I'm ashamed because I cannot produce them. Um, Can you say exterminate in the harsh voice for me? I could, but I'm not going to. Yeah, um, in your list that you gave us, you had like um, falsetto as a... Yeah, th- I think that... So this website we're going to include in the in the notes has a bunch of these phonation types and I think it's written written from the standpoint of a speech pathologist I'm not aware of any language in which falsetto applies unless you're singing yeah I'd or actually... or or you're possessed let me play this <laughs> file and see okay that sounded like a horn uh right which <laughs> yeah um yeah, in some in some Khoisan languages, so those are the languages of Africa that have a clicks and pops, have something a voice voicing type, which in fact it's not your vocal cords, but your epiglottis that is vibrating, um, which explains why people who speak these languages get nodules on their vocal cords by the time they're adults. Strident voice is this what you're talking about? Let's see yeah. how. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't. I can't make it, so I'm not going to try. I don't know. I don't know yeah. even where my epiglottis is exactly. <laughs> so I can't figure out. How to George, make it. swallow if you can feel it moving when you swallow. Okay. Uh, Any, yeah. Anyway, so we don't need to sit here and make strange noises into the into our podcast. <laughs> um, there are other kinds of phonation types. These are the main ones. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, are... so let's just leave those there, and we can talk about them a little bit more after we've touched tone, because there's something interesting about how tone and phonation relate. Yeah, so we kind of talked a little bit about tone before, but um, basically you have a couple different choices if you want to have a tonal language, in that you can go with something, the, the more simple systems are two-tone and three-tone, and they are usually purely just pitch-based tones when you have two or three tones. It's it's low and high or low, mid, and high. Right. And then if you go more than three, you usually have contour tones added into that, which a contour is falling, rising, you know, flat, whatever. Right. My favorite example of a simple two-tone system is Navajo, 
Um, that probably accounts for why Laudan has a two-tone system because she, her dissertation was on Navajo. Um, so, example words or something like yispej, which has you know starts with a low syllable, then a long high syllable. Um, I'm trying to find one that has a, another contrast. Hata again, long low, high short nasal. Very often. When you get so you got the two tone system, the three tone system, which is what Yoruba has, and those those are both systems are pretty common in Africa. Once you get to tone contours, weird things start to happen. Very often, pitch contour is conflated with a different phonation type. Technically, these are called register languages. For example, Burmese has four tones. I think two of them use modal voice. One of them uses breathy voice. One of them uses creaky voice. So, is there any like pattern to which tone is likely to take which phonation type? Well, I th- uh, let me find. My guess is very l- low tones, or especially things that go into enter from high into the low tone range, are going to have creaky voice. Because as I mentioned earlier. If you move your voice very low, creaky voice is a normal development of that. That jives with with Mandarin personal experience because I know that Mandarin, a lot of times, third tone will be accompanied by creaky voice. Ah. Right. Yeah. So that might be right. I don't know. We'd have to actually do research. Yeah, we need to see, and, and I might be saying that. So, for example, Burmese, their creaky voice actually starts high and then has a slightly falling pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and high long has a breathy phonation. And even if there is some correlation, it could be sort of murdered by historical processes. Right, right. I mean, another source for things like creaky voice are... Um, Glottal stops, especially coda glottal stops, cause all sorts of hanky-panky historically. Okay. So, since I, I brought this up, so this is my favorite example in historical linguistics of all of the planet has to do with the Athabascan languages, many of which have two-tone systems. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, when you look at cognates, you will find that the words have opposite tone patterns. So, if the word is high-toned in one language, it will be low-toned in another. (laughs) If you have low-high-low, it will be high-low-high in the other language. And there's no obvious pattern to which languages went high, which languages go low. What happened is they all had, are all responding to having a glottal stop ending the syllable. You mentioned this in a previous episode. I can't remember which one it was, but yeah. Quite a while ago. So some languages, glottal stop at the end of the syllable produced a high tone. And in other languages, glottal stop in the final, at the end of a syllable produced a low tone. That's very, that's very interesting because sort of, if you want to get into sort of a little bit of history um, and diachronics, a lot of times tone comes from coda consonants changing the uh, the pitch of the vowel. And then disappearing. Yeah. Um, that I, I sort of uh, sort of mentioned that at the at the beginning when we were talking a little bit about this, but yeah. You, um, it basically is sort of like 
several generations start to pay more attention to the tone and to and I I mentioned at the top uh, that basically sounds are not well Bianca brought it up that sounds are not sort of isolated from each other that they blend into each other and that's one thing that does happen on a spectrogram is vowels get deformed by surrounding consonants right well yeah you see that with deformants like the most obvious thing is that <clears throat> if you have a velar and then like a vowel, you'll usually get some sort of what's called a velar pinch, which is kind of a strange little formation where the formants kind of come together. It's kind of hard to explain without saying it, but that's yeah. one but of the, the ways to tell which kind of stop you have because most yeah. stops look the same. So it makes makes it it just makes things kind of interesting when you when you think about it because basically um, you're saying that for some reason a glottal stop can make the vowel go either way. Right. Um, well, different languages differ in how much they chew on that glottal stop, especially when it's a coda. In some languages it is very light, and in other languages it's impossible. You know, you can hear it across the room. Like mm-hmm. uh, like English glottal stop compared to Arabic glottal stop. For you example. hear an Arabic glottal stop, you know you hear it. In English, you don't really notice it. Yes. When you hear Arabic, you know you have been exposed to a glottal stop. <laughs> I, I, um, I, hear, I hear the allophonic glottal stop, uh, the allophone for T, very, very It is strongly. harder than, I think, your typical American one. Yeah, but, yeah. The, the cockney bottle. Yeah, bottle. But yeah, it, I, I did not even know until recently that a lot of English words have initial glottal stops, because I'd never heard it. Right. It's very right. subtle. It's it just is pretty subtle. Trick your mind. Uh huh. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something. Oh, uh, the same thing happens with things like ejective consonants. Some of them are really chew on that glottal stop, and others don't. Both of these things can introduce either tone stuff, as we talked about. In other languages, coda glottal stops cause creaky voice, and that makes sense because you're already starting to constrict things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example. In Misantla Totonac, which is a language spoken in Mexico, the only way to recognize the second person conjugation of some verbs is creaky voice in the final vowel. Ew. That is the only thing left. Now, this language has contrastive creaky voice. I I find it very hard to switch between creaky and non-creaky from syllable to syllable. Uh Uh-huh. So I can't give examples, but creaky voice is a distinctive phonemic quality in Toton- all the Totonic dialects, as far as it's, I can tell. So. It's kind of surprising how subtle creaky voice is, because if you see it on a spectrogram, it destroys the whole thing. You see it, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I can't use this. It's ruined it, because it kind of looks like a bunch of half glottal stops all through it, and I'm like, screw it. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it, That's what it looks like, and then you look yeah. at it, and you're like, ruined data, bastard. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. So, the point I want to raise about that for people who are doing historical language creation is once your language has invented a new sound distinction, whether it is tone but only constrained to certain places or creaky voice only con- constrained to certain positions, once that contrast exists, it now becomes available to being used in other places. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by, like, it might 
shift over by analogy, or it might just uh, independently form in other places, or what? It might independently form in other places. Okay. Right. So, this is how this is how new consonant sounds get invented, and then they become available um, for for being the result of other kinds of process, you know, historical sound changes and so forth. So, in other words, once you invent creaky voice, uh, you're you're you have you're more likely to have another sound change that puts creaky voice in another position. Right. Once all of your speakers has been trained to attend to that difference, it becomes available. For example, I am pretty sure that all of the high tones in Navajo are not the result of coda glottal stops. It's other things have gone on. There's kinds of tone assimilation. Uh, all sorts of stuff is going on, especially in you know that magnificent edifice of the Navajo verb, where I'm pretty sure not all of those tones are the result of, historically, the result of glottal stops. This makes me gives me really interesting ideas for a language family I want to make. There you go. So that's, that's why I wanted to make that point, is once you've got a little change that all of your, your speakers are listening to, that, that, that distinction matters now, and so it becomes available for use elsewhere. See, this, this, but basically what I'm thinking is this can make for a really easy way to turn one proto-lang into a very distinctive daughter languages because basically if you have coded glottal stops you can do the thing where one of them turns it into a into a high tone one of them turns into a low tone one of them turns it into creaky voice one turns it into low creaky you know one one turns it into a long vowel and simply deletes it yeah you could you could just go like five different directions with just that one sound and, and turns it into an H. And they <laughs> end up going uh, very interesting directions. Yep. So that's <laughs> so so that's tonogenesis. Um and, and Athabascan fun. Um and I guess the the last super segmental I wanted to talk about was nasalization, the one that I know Bianca loves so much. It's not pretty, okay? Um so, <laughs> nasalization diff- usually comes from a historical Coda nasal or what? I think probably yeah. Because um, I know that English has some nasalization in some dialects that comes from coda nasal, and I know that. Well, it's pretty common mm-hmm. to get it. I'm not nasals. sure where else it would come from. I mean, some somebody who knows more historical stuff could tell us. But um, for example, in Navajo, which not only has high and low tone and long vowels, has nasalization. Nasal vowels become normal oral vowels followed by an N when followed by a suffix that starts with a vowel. Oh, wow. That sounds like very similar to what happens with French liaison. Yes, except backwards. (laughs) Yeah. French has some weird... Well, not that weird. I think it has both like allophonic and contrastive nasalization, which results in having vowels being... Different amounts of nasalization is how it basically turns up on your analysis. I think. Oh, but, that's okay. I didn't know that. I, didn't I know think the. Uh, I don't know. I, I only heard about because my linguistics professor used it as an example of ordered phonological rules. I know about the uh, liaison and and um, the allophonic nasalization, which also has deletion of the nasal that causes it, which is interesting. 
<laughs> right. So in the, the Navajo case, that nasal is that that nasal consonant reappears yeah. um, in the, in the, in certain circumstances. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Um, but so what can, what what else is interesting about nasalization? Is there anything other? It it tends to be, and this is just based on me looking at lots and lots of Native American languages where nasalization matters. It sure seems like certain kinds of vowels don't like to be nasalized. Very high vowels are seem to me to be less likely to be nasalized. Typically, your mid and low vowels. Hmm. It seems more difficult to do the high ones now that I think about it. So, so e and u are less likely to be nasalized than e or a. Huh. Especially those that have phonemic rather than um, um, conditioned nasalization. That's interesting. Again, and that's just that's just me looking and often noticing that there is no. I mean, some languages still do have it, and like Bianca says, I find it hard to pronounce harder to pronounce e than I fi- than to pronounce a. Um. That is Does Portuguese have the high ones? That that is something interesting to point out, though. Um, I found your mention, in fact, of the. I found your Wikipedia article that you linked to. That was the language with um, nasal creaky and nasal creaky. Um, let me link to it. But what I noticed here is. Um, Basically, not all vowels will carry a supersegmental, at least in this language. And I think that that may be sort of a a common thing that sort of, if you have nasalization, not all vowels will be nasalized. If you have creaky voice, not all vowels will have creaky voice. Right. Um, in this one, the vowel uh doesn't take any supersegmentals. And then the nasals are restricted... Uh, the nasal cannot apply to o, so it's sort of like um, the certain certain vowels have resisted historically the the change or something. Right, and then you have fun languages like um, Cherokee, which has a single nasalized vowel which is of its own quality. So the uh sound only ever that vowel sound only ever occurs nasalized, and it is the only nasalized sound. Yeah. That's a really that's a really bizarre one. It's a characteristic of the Iroquois languages, but I don't know how common that is in in other language families. Um, but that's something you might consider. You could apply that to other things like vowel length, which we didn't even talk about here. Sure. Um, we, and anything where if you you don't have to make you don't have to make it. The, the the super segmentals symmetrical correct you can just have some vowels just sort of not have it we've talked probably enough about this topic <laughs> and uh, I'll have some resources in the show notes and you can do some of your own research to uh, figure out what exactly you want to do with your language or yeah, we even we haven't even talked about things like pharyngealization and, and <laughs> things that can be I mean there's so many of these but I, I thought I'd mention some of the yeah, the easy targets mostly we talked about super segmentals that apply to vowels and yeah. to syllables yes we didn't do anything about consonants which kind of ends up in a different animal too um, but 
why don't we move on to our featured conlang, which is Kamakawi by David G. Peterson. Um, I regret telling him about the colors on this website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the you can you can click the thing and and fix it. Yeah, I know, but he should fix it himself. <laughs> so, um, it has sort of an Austronesian. It is feel. the festival of Austronesia. Yeah. Um, certainly, as as soon as I look at the the consonant chart, I see that because very very few consonants here. Not quite. I don't think it's quite as restricted as like Hawaiian, but it has things like it has no s. Right. Um, the vowels, um, possibly slightly more. I don't know much about uh, Austronesian in general. I don't know if they usually have schwa. Um. Well, his schwa is allophonic only. Allophonic okay, so. only. Um. So I, I don't think this is completely weird for Austronesian languages, which tend to have something central. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he invented a script for it. Yes, he did. So the thing about Kamakawi is he has a Kamakami word of the day on his blog, which he keeps up pretty regularly and reliably, um, which will have new characters um, and vocabulary with some meanings in an example sentence or two, and frequently a picture of his cat. <laughs> if possible, doing something which illustrates the example sentence. How 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 can he make the cat do that? Well, it depends. If he happens to catch her doing something interesting, then yeah, I suppose. Um, the pronouns are interesting in that there are five different um, gender categories for the third person pronoun. Right. So you have. Male, female, neuter, non-gender specific, and general. I presume that he doesn't actually have grammatical gender because he doesn't use the term masculine, feminine. So, right. the The business of having singular, dual, trial, and plural pronouns is very Austronesian. So that ah, is okay. the business of all of these different third-person pronouns. I think is his own thing. Hmm. Um, and he has multiple possessives. And you were mentioning that that's. Sort right. Of? That's yeah. very Austronesian. Not Hawaiian, particularly. Um, uh-huh. I know some people compare this. Like, so, it's kind of... The, the possession is merged with a classifier system. Mm-hmm. So, in your classic... And, and if you actually Google Austronesian possession, you will find papers on this subject. Typically, you have alienable possession and inalienable possession. And the inalienable set may be quite substantial. Uh huh. And what happens is you say the possessum, which is that is the thing possessed, and then the possessive phrase follows it, which will have the pronoun and a classifier. Uh huh. For example, and I, I wish I could somewhere in my iPod is a grammar of a language that does this and has a bunch of these, but I couldn't find it. If you're talking about a food product, you will have a special food class. So. And you might get into normal classifier things where shape is involved. Um, I like this. Um, so he has this word apeo, which is sort of literally one of, but it has a whole lot of different meanings. Usually it's deriving a count noun from a mas- 
Yeah. No. Well, it has one meaning in Kamakawi. It just translates into a lot of different things in English. Yeah. So you end up with apeo teve, drop of blood, apeo fale, blade of grass. But the interesting thing is, it looks this looks like sort of a uh, uh, an idiomatic thing that he did. Was, sure. So uh, apeo kopu, one of hand is a finger. Right. So, so th- for some reason, the possessives are on uh, the pronoun page at the bottom. Oh, yeah, All right, I so he, he's got five of them. One of them is to use professional relationships and also to indicate one's relationship to a place, like I'm from Hawaii. That's the one. Um, there's one possessive prefix which is used to mark something that you created yourself. So this is a subset of inalienable possession. That's where, interesting. Where, yeah. my, right, does my book refer to a book that I have in my hand or is it a book that I wrote? And then he's got one that appears to be the catch-all, which just says this prefix is used when the possessed is something that is inanimate and not a product of the possessor. Then we have this O, which you talked about before, and it indicates that the possession, where the possessed is an integral part of the possessor. A tree's leaves, a car's paint job, a mirror's reflection, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this one is baffling. This prefix, oi. This prefix is used when the possessor has a non-professional relationship with the possessed. So, for example, the woman's lover, the boy's pet doggy, the man's father. That's interesting. I don't know if he means only families. I, honestly, I would like more examples of these. Yeah, you might need to figure out what what exactly he means by non-professional and professional, because that could be sort of culturally specific. Well, it would have to be. Um, so, actually, I think Kamikawi is a nice introduction to this interesting kind of possessive scheme, which occurs all over in in the Austronesian languages, which can have um, can be fairly elaborated. It's pretty unusual, and it gets linguists all excited. Um, one thing I want to say about this language, and so far as the way it's presented, this is a very good language for beginning conlangers to look at because he goes through the trouble of sort of ex- having sort of explanatory things at the beginning of certain uh, sections that are sort of like talk about how English does this and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I wish more people would do that just because assuming people know stuff is always a terrible practice when writing things that are being presented in theory to an audience. Okay. Also, I think it's it's interesting that he assuming someone's going to read it is also probably a bad idea in practice. But yeah, you know, he put um, baby names on here. Yeah, David has a very whimsical way of writing things. So the entire grammar of Kamakami, which I read over the last few days, has a great deal of silliness, which I suppose is helpful if you're reading grammar and don't love grammar. <laughs> if you're reading grammar and love grammar, then sometimes it's it's a little distracting. Um. So, uh, my favorite example is he has a section on the verb page about valency, and I'm just going to read this paragraph because it's hysterical. If you ever want to get a totally neutral reaction out of a linguist, typologists excluded, ask them about valency. If you, yes you, divided up the world into those that care about valence-changing operations and those that don't, and pitted the two groups against each other in a deadly game of dodgeball played with spiked metal balls rather than rubber ones, then at the end of the day there'd no longer be anyone alive who cared about valence-changing operations, myself included, though I'd put up a hell of a fight. (laughs) 
And this is the sort of thing he does, right? He's got example sentences like, a fish was hugged by a woman. So, uh, right. Um, oh. He uses serial verb constructions, which we don't need to explain here. You can go read them yourself. It's another interesting thing that pops up in languages across the world in various ways. And this might be a good introduction for beginning conlangers to see it. Yeah. Um, Also, he does a lot of just fun stuff here, like the the word of the day. You mentioned baby names. He has postcards and uh, all his relay text. He has lots of texts. Available. He does have lots of texts. Um, sadly, I can't find any audio samples, but um, can't have everything. Right. <laughs> I think we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he does awesome audio samples for Dothraki. So I would, I would, I would hope that he would work on. Did he get for paid for Dothraki? Yes, yeah. he did. Did he get paid for Kamikawi? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we found the difference. Does he have more than one orthography for Kamikawa? Uh, he might well. Looks like he has like an alphabet that's very it's very Sequoia-esque alphabet. Um, in addition to his odd glyphs. <laughs> oh, I love this one. Uh, ELA, a common boy's name that's bland and inoffensive. Boys with the name Iele don't get teased. They often don't get much of anything. In fact, they tend to blend in and not get noticed. <laughs> uh, 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 another a corpus. What is that? Oh, yes, he does have a corpus. We can get back to that in a second because it makes me cranky. So another thing he does with the verbs is he, within tense, he encodes a switch reference system. Um, remind me what page. a switch reference system is. Switch reference. So, when I say a sentence like, the man walked into the barn and got kicked by a horse, we assume that the second clause, and got kicked by a horse, that the subject is the same. That's how we do in English. We assume the sentence that the subject persists from clause to clause that are joined that way. That's mm-hmm. why we have passives, so that we can keep the thing we care about as the subject. The man walked into the barn and got kicked by a horse. In a switch reference system, your often conjunctions code whether the subject is the same as the previous clause or different from the previous clause. Ah, okay. Um, And switch reference systems occur all over the world. In the case of Kamakawi, he has the past versus non-past marking um, encode a switch reference system that makes three distinctions. Same subject... Brand new subject, new subject from old non-subject. So, I saw the man, and he talked to me. The and he talked to me would involve a switch reference, because what was the direct object of the previous clause is now the subject of this clause. Okay. Oh, is that the one that was only then, in the singular, though? And then you, your, your previous example, the, the man walked in and got kicked by a horse, you, you might actually do the brand new subject one and have the man walked in and the horse kicked him. If you said it that way, yes. I mean, Kamikawi has a passive, so I assume for discourse reasons you would say it the way we say it in English. Mm-hmm. Right, because we care about the man more than we care about the horse. The horse. <laughs> I mean, maybe we don't. I don't know, but... 
Uh, so typically, I don't typically think, when I don't humans think are talking, the, I don't think that Kamikawa is 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 um is uh is is spoken by Gulliver's horses. So right when when we talk, most of the time when humans talk about human talk, they care about humans. You know, maybe if Dothraki had a switch reference system, the horse might be more prominent. But <laughs> um, I don't think it, it uses that. So I'm not sure that Austronesian languages do this very often. They might. I. I've only recently started reading about them. But this is a non-terrifying introduction to the idea of switch reference, if you're not familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that struck me about the language was his relative clauses. For two reasons. One, some of them are built out of the same mechanics that produced those possessives uh-huh. that we found so interesting. Second of all, you have different kinds of relatives, relative structures, to account for what role the pivot is playing in the embedded clause. Mm-hmm. In English, in many European languages, it's completely loosey-goosey. We can have the pivot of a relative clause be anything in the relative clause. Subject, direct object, indirect object, object of a preposition. But in lots of languages what you can do in that relative clause is quite restrained. You can say, I see the man who is running. I see the man who the boy is yelling at. Um, but not, I see the man whose dog this is. Because it's possessive. And what he's done with Kamikawi is we have all sorts of interesting... I mean, he covers all of the possibilities. Relativizing locations, relativizing genitives, blah, blah, blah. All of this stuff. Um which he did in an interesting way by using other grammar for a new purpose, and he really thought about all of the possibilities. So I think it's another case where it's a good introduction and a good education for beginning conlang. Here's, here's an, an example of his uh, of his whimsic, whimsical way of writing. In his conclusion, he says, and that's, that's how you do relative clauses in Kamikawa. That's it. It's done. No more. Woohoo! Now the only place you'll see them again is when we get back to, is when we get to the si- section on syntax. Ah, wicked syntax. A section which he is yet to write. <laughs> it, it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> uh, so many people don't get to syntax. Yeah, I know. It's very disappointing. Oh, so, he translated the McGuffey Reader. Yeah. There are many texts in the language. Mm-hmm. Um... One thing that drives me bonkers is his dictionary is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a glossary um, which contains partial definitions, but most of his effort seems to have gone into the lexicon on corpus, which simply has example sentences. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't necessarily take you to the definition of the words you would like to see. Yeah, you there. It looks like it is searchable, but sure, but it's still not what I want out of a lexicon. Yes, well, you, and, and, you and, want to read them right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think in general, <laughs> so, here's another. <laughs> you there, behold my dog statue and tremble in fear. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh huh. Uh huh. You were saying? I was gonna say the glossary sort of covers this. And then he he sort of uh, thoroughly lists all syllable possibilities in the language and then assigns definitions when he gets to them. Um, but, uh, oh, so, right. It's it's not 
particularly fun to interact with. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I'll say, in general, this is a very good language to look at. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff to distract you if you get tired of reading through the grammar. But, yes. Um, I'm sorry. I just saw a postcard. It has a picture of a turtle. And it has the comic going on top, and then the English translation is "Touch me and die." <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, I think that's about all we can really say about it. I think the fi- my final thought is, beginning con language, do look at it and look at how he presents it, and see and and think about you know what he's doing because because he has some interesting explanation of what he's doing and it's a good thing for someone who's not exactly used to reading grammars to look at yeah no there's a lot a lot that can be learned i i sort of wish that some of the sentences had a little more glossing i mean he does a pretty good job of identifying the elements he's paying attention to um but sometimes i don't think he's very much into full-on glosses. He likes to just sort of like underline the relevant part or something. Yeah, it's it, or then put some vocabulary in parentheses, yeah, <laughs> or something. I mean, it's not hard, right? Morphologically, the language is not complex, so it, it shouldn't add too much overhead to define a few words for people. Yeah, uh, Bianca, what are your thoughts about Kamakawi? Did we lose Bianca? Bianca, are you there? Sorry, I had it muted because I was. Chewing on my cough drop. Uh. <laughs> um, no, it's it's good. It's there. Not necessarily my most favorite thing ever, but there's good things. I'm just reading the baby names now. <laughs> <laughs> For entertainment value, it's very high. Yeah, I like this one, Leia. A strong boy's named prized by fathers, despised by mothers. Kind of like Rocky in English. <laughs> all right okay so um i think we can sort of put that aside and go back to feedback uh go to go to feedback sorry just move on to feedback um so we had a bunch of of, um comments on episode 30 on our numerals episode and really i think a lot people might benefit from just going through that whole um comments thread because there was very interesting discussion there. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I'm going to highlight one because it it sort of directly addresses something that we mentioned in the show. And um, so Sea Monk, uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be pronounced something weird, but I presume it's Sea Monk, um, gave us, he says, a short introduction to Danish numbers. In Danish, half fem half five, and forgive me for pronouncing these wrong, is 430. Because uh, I don't know how to pronounce Danish anyway. But So, half five in Danish is 430. Oh yeah, now Bianca found Swedish. I think he wrote that while he was listening. Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's, let's continue with his... There's also a special word for one and a half in Danish. It's half and ten. And there is a rarely... And it has rarely used counterparts... Half third year, half third, two point five. Half your day, half fourth, three point five. Um, and this brings me to the vigesimal part of the number system. The names for 
the the names of the tens fifty to ninety are derived from the from the number of scores. For example, sixty is tres in TV. I have no idea. Um, uh, well, but three times twenty. So this is a conser- rather conservative way of saying it, and is normally shortened to tres. Um, for the rest of it, I'm just going to say the numbers and say how they're derived rather than trying to read the Danish. Um, but, <laughs> uh, he says 50 is basically half-third times 20, so basically 2.5 times 20 is 50, and then 70 is half-fourth times 20, 80 is 4 times 20, 90 is half-fifth times 20, and That's- so... That's even more crazy than I would have guessed. So this this is really interesting, though. That um, basically it has these special words for one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, and then uses those to derive other terms based on a decimal system. Yep, Danish is truly bizarre. Well, the one and a half, two and a half, three. You know the the. One halves, three quarters, and and so forth, or half fourth. Those occur in other languages. Other Indo-European languages have things like a word for one and a half. Uh huh. Um, so it's not like that's completely unmotivated or is coming from someplace weird. That's not uncommon. But using two point five times twenty to indicate fifty is wow, ridiculous. Well, I don't know if it's ridiculous. It's surprising. It's still ridiculous. Well, yeah. So thank you for that charming feedback. We had one guy talking about how Russian worked as well. That was delightfully crazy. <laughs> I, I'm looking at this comic that uh, that Bianca liked. You to. should post that with the thing. Yeah. I will warn that there's language, but it's not that much language. So So the the thing that was interesting about the numbers in Russian, and I had forgotten about this. I sort of I probably knew this once long ago. Is where is it? All right. So, where the hell did it go? Long oh, long. yeah, I remember reading the Russian thing, thinking, thank God I didn't decide to learn Russian. Right. So, this was Kromlep, who says that Russian is glorious. It uses the genitive singular with two, three, and four, and numerals ending in those dis- digits, yeah. and the genitive plural through for five through nine. So, you get one book, two of book, three of book, four of book, five of books. 21 book, 22 of book, 25 of books, and so on. Truly inspirational. That is really awesome. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's really awesome, because you think of, you know, okay, sort of one to three doesn't take plural. That sort of makes sense in sort of a way of it's not that many of them. But then, apparently, it had this sort of analogy-fueled... change so that any time that something less than five is is uh, the final digit, it doesn't take the plural. So it, it turns something sort of maybe logical into something really crazy. Well, no, it's kind of... Uh, it's like how we have problems with in English with agreement. If your verb is too far separated from the actual word that determines the number... Uh-huh. Like singular or plural, we might pick the wrong verb. Yeah, right. You know like what? Many of my friends. Oh, continue. 
Um, so they you're just talking, you're talking about like the agreement with nearest that happens in right US, agreement right? with nearest, and so they decided the Russians decided that they're going to do agreement with nearest, where the nearest was deferred, defined as the ones unit. Yes, of all of their numbers. There was also a couple of comments that mentioned Chinese uh, that I was interested in. One person sort of was speculating that Chinese. The Chinese writing system had could have somehow prevented it from from going crazy with historical changes to numerals, which I kind of came back to him like, nah, it doesn't. It's not really that restrictive because basically, if that had if there had been some historical craziness with the numerals and it caught on, they would have just invented a new character for it. Yes, because they they did that other times where things got. Blended. Yeah, it's, uh, there's there's um, you know cases where there've been contractions that just they've made a character for it. Yep. Um. So. And you know what I was another thinking. Person, oh, sorry. Yeah, an, another person. It, it was all sort of writing system stuff that they mentioned with Chinese. Somebody mentioned that the uh, the banking numerals, which are I thought those were a, really clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a fraud protection device, and people still use those. Well, I mean, with the example he showed, yeah. putting like two to five thousand or something. Yeah, I think I'd be damn sure to make sure no one's changing my check. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the whole that's the whole idea. That's why those those uh, numerals exist. It's sort of interesting because we didn't even mention written numbers at all. But you know, if you develop a written numeral system, that that's almost like an entire different episode we could do because yeah. there's different ways you can go with that. That's what I was going to mention. After we did the episode, I was thinking later on that I was like, thank God I have never had to add in Roman numerals. Because <laughs> I was thinking about it, what a pain that must have been. Yeah, William, are you still there? I am still there. The Romans came up with tricks to make doing... I know they did, but still. I prefer our newer shinier system. Yeah, I can't imagine it was fun doing math in Mayan. No. Oh, did they have ridiculous stuff? The Mayan system is a little funky, but that we can save that for another episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's sort of that's that's sort of an entirely different cuz like my my only thing was that with that was yeah, the writing doesn't really affect it. Like think about it. We use a place value we use when we use the arabic numeral system and it and sort of uh yeah uh sort of um co-opted that none of the european languages changed in order to more reflect that that particular um positional system so yeah i mean even german didn't change <laughs> German even has still has it backwards from the way it's written over the 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 written numbers. Well, so does English vestigialis. Oh my god, uh, vestigially. Vestigially. Yes, and some of those teen numbers. Anyway. Um. But anyway, I think that's about all we can really talk about for that. But yeah, guys, look at that because we we. I have been involved in that discussion, and it's really interesting stuff that people brought up. I think numerals are an interest uh, are sort of an easy topic to 
start, you know, talking about because it's so easy to sort of find weird things with them. And some people, yeah, I'm sorry, my brain is still wrapping itself around the um, Danish system. <laughs> don't, is, don't think about it too much. You may, you may have an aneurysm in the way. It is, it is sort of uh, mind-breaking, isn't it? I think I want to make a language that does that, though. Okay. <laughs> something something like it. Uh, so, let's get out of this episode. We've been recording for a long time. This looks like it's going to be a long episode. Okay. Uh, Bianca, do you have any final wisdom? Don't get sick. <laughs> uh, William. Yeah, no wisdom this week. Okay. I'm going to say happy Conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery. Follow us on on Twitter at Conlangery or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Conlangery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Null Device. I'm trying to find. Uh, do 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 do. It's not here. Where are the the classifiers? Right. Uh, uh, maybe under nouns or something. So we have a little pause here, which George can edit out later. Uh, as I find this, do 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 do. Well, that's irritating. And uh, yeah, there was that and. Sorry, there's somebody QQing me. Um, but um, there was also a couple of comments that mentioned Chinese. Why are you so retarded that you have to end every word with like three of the last letter? But that was really just her making sure everyone knew it was in her creepy voice. I was going to creep George out by putting Ayuruyo in the subject line, but that's <laughs> not there. You should have just picked random words like... Do I even have a word yeah. for night? Yeah, no. Then how come I can hear bling... Skype is in the hood. Nomad of NORAD is not following me. The only email we have is a very long follow-up from the guy who said bow down to my awesomeness. I kind of love-hate the English reduced vowel thing. A cacophony. Normal people pronounce it cacophony, but that makes it sound like something posh. I know somebody who always talked about the prefaces to books. This might be uh, a, a a really different problem, but I had a communications teacher that insisted that the word larynx should be pronounced larynx. I always heard metathesis. Metathesis yeah. makes me think I'm writing an actual thesis. <laughs> um, You're writing a thesis about theses? It could be a thesis about feces. It's theses. Wait, did someone do... Oh, you said good day, mate. Oh, what was it?
I'm sick, by the way, so I'm not making any sense. Episode. Oh, the Alt Lang thing. Yeah, that's not yeah. bad. Bogo Lang has always been a bit weird, in my opinion, but that was the standard. And we don't want to be crazy like Cantonese, but you know. I woke up, I ate. I slept for three hours, I ate. I slept for another three hours, I ate. And I'm so hungry. When you listen to a, a, a language that you only partially understand, it can be funny to listen to the radio. Particularly listening to the random Chinese talk shows that taxi drivers always listen to. I, I, there was one guy I got just enough of what he meant was to, to understand that he was ranting about how the Mini Cooper is not actually that small. But I saw an old one here in England. They are so tiny. I was taller than it. And I'm only 5'1", and I'm, like, staring down at the top of a car. I'm like, this has never happened to me before in my life. <laughs> That's true. I think it was one of the sick children here being disgusting and sick all over me. Athabaskan wonkiness. How many of these shows have Athabaskan wonkiness in the show notes? I'm going to idea. a party with a friend that will involve lots of gay rugby players. No, I would say wrestling is gayer, but short of wrestling, I think rugby would be up there. Now that we have covered segmentals that are supra. Ooh, 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 Bianca, I had an idea today for your hate lane. Oh, no. That you would code the statement's type by forcing the sentence into a verse form. I will move it and see what else catches your interest. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I was working, this lady came in, and her last name was Moriarty. And I was like, is your your husband's name Jim? And she was like, what? 